Hey, this is Allison with a quick note. This episode was originally recorded in the fall of 2019 and thus reflects the publishing industry and also specifically the nature of touring and promotion as it was at the time. Obviously, these are strange times that we're in right now, but Gina and I are confident that we're going to get back to the old book tour grind eventually. And also, there's still a ton of stuff in here that's relevant to virtual events and online promotion in addition to things in person. So please enjoy the episode. This is Graphic Novel TK, your podcast guide to comic book publishing. Hi, and welcome to Graphic Novel TK. I'm Allison Wilgus. And I'm Gina Gagliano. Today we're talking to Julia Paul Miranda, who's the marketing director for Doran and Quarterly. Julia, can you tell us a little about who you are, how you got into comics, and what you're doing now? So, um, as you mentioned, I'm the marketing director for Doran and Quarterly. That means that I am responsible for book tours and uh, arranging interviews and press for authors, as well as academic and library um, marketing for our books. And I got into comics with Drawn and Quarterly. So I'm a Canadian. Basically what happened was I did an undergrad in Montreal and I finished my undergrad in English literature with a French language and literature minor. And I was like, oh my God, I have no concrete skills. And I panicked. And so I basically started doing all the things to try and give myself some concrete skills. So I started learning to fix my own bike and I started learning to preserve food. And I got an internship with the best local publisher. And that was Drawn and Quarterly. And I had always read comics as a kid and as a teenager. Tintin, Asterix, Nobelix, um, this Argentine comic called Patrocito and, uh, you know, Betty and Veronica, Archie. Uh, one of my sister's ex-boyfriends was a big Marvel fan, and he had a huge long box of comics that were worthless that he donated to us when he moved to Winnipeg when I was a kid. So I've read a lot of different kinds of comics over the years. As a teenager, I started reading independent comics, the stuff that Drawn and Quarterly publishes. I loved comics, but I was never just a comics and I was always a, a reader in general. And I continued to read comics and I continued to read everything else. And I did my undergrad in literature. And then when I graduated and was looking for an internship and found the best publisher in town to be a comics publisher, I was like, oh, great. Like, I'll, I'll get an internship with this comics publisher. And so in the fall of 2008, I got an internship with Drawn and Quarterly. And I have been with Drawn and Quarterly in one capacity or another ever since. So it's Coming up on, well, I just passed 10 years of work with DNQ. I started as an intern in fall of 2008, and then I started working at our bookstore in Montreal in the spring of 2009. And then I came back on to the publishing side in 2010 or 2011. Um, and I've had a bunch of different jobs at the company, but Almost all of them have been the Word jobs and not the Photoshop jobs. So I have very few Photoshop skills, but a I know a lot about talking about books and talking about comics. So you just delegate the Photoshop to other people? Yes, the Photoshop gets delegated. Mostly, I mean, the Photoshop, most of the Photoshopping happens with, uh, with our editorial team, which I am gladly not part of because <laughs> I do not have those skills and I would not be the person to do them. But... I do have a marketing assistant. There's me and one other person in our marketing department, and she's great, and she helps me when we have Photoshop things we need to do. I do some very light Photoshop and InDesign, making press releases and stuff like that, but mostly my job is words and emails. <laughs> I love how you're like, I need to have some practical skills, like fixing a bike and canning food and also in the grand scheme of things <laughs> those are both more practical than photoshop and also working at a comics publisher like these are all equally practical uses of my time i was <laughs> i knew that i wanted to work in books and i knew i was thinking about going to do a master's degree of publishing but i couldn't tell if it mattered whether you had a master's of publishing or not um, so I was like, I'll just get an internship while I think about it. I did well in university, but I was like, I didn't do that well in university. I did fine in universities. So I was like, at least if I have an internship under my belt, like I'll have experience doing a few things. I'll know a little bit more about the publishing side. Um, and it's also funny because when I started 
interning at DNQ, typically all of the interns at DNQ end up working in Photoshop. You know, we do a lot of cleaning up of artwork, especially back in 2008. We were cleaning a lot of artwork. People were turning in original art and that would get scanned and cleaned extensively. And so I'm one of the very few drawn and quarterly interns who never did that side of things because from day one, I was like, this side, the like Photoshop side is not going to be where I'm good. That is not where my skill set lies. And so I will not be trying for that. So I had actually from day one been Peggy's intern, um, our publisher, who was then the marketing director. Um, I'm not sure what her title actually was, but she was in the position that I'm in. So I was her intern and I wasn't the general intern, which is what like 95% of the interns and now fellowships are, is like mostly production and editorial work with a tiny splash of publicity. Me, I was specifically a dedicated publicity and marketing intern. Peggy is like so smart and so good at her job that it was always really inspiring to watch her work and see like how quickly she could come up with a solution to something. So uh, yeah, so I I started as an intern in the fall and then I kind of went away on a trip. I had been like, oh, well, I can come in for a few months, but then I'm going on this trip to see my friends but I'll come back in the winter when I'm back from my trip. So when I came back in the winter, they were like, oh, you actually came back? You like followed through on what you said you were going to do? That's really cool. And so there was an opening at the bookstore and they offered me the opening at the bookstore. And then that's been really cool because it means that I've, instead of just being on the publishing side, being on the retail side really gives you a perspective on how to run an event and what kind of events are successful or unsuccessful and things like that. So it's been really nice to be able, like that's one of the very fun things about having bookstores in Montreal is that we get to be involved on both sides and get a lot of perspective on like what other big name authors who we would never publish ask for, for their events. And, you know, um, we get to work with authors and publishers who we wouldn't otherwise work with as a company because they don't make comics. So Okay, so we want to dive into the subject of this episode, which is what happens after a book's publication date. There's a whole lot of attention and effort that are focused on what goes on before a book comes out, and then kind of on that, this is the release date, the publication date, the one true date of the book reaching people. When you think about marketing and publicity and all the things that you do, Do you plan kind of a laser focus on that one day or do you think kind of more sweepingly beyond that as well? Yeah. So I think what makes Drawn and Quarterly Drawn and Quarterly is that we both follow our author's lead and we also tailor the way that we handle each book to each book. So to say that a little bit more eloquently, each book is not given this a package treatment. We're not looking at each book and saying, oh, okay, six days before publication, we're doing this. And two days before publication, we're doing this. And the day, week after publication, we're doing that. I mean, we have some things that obviously you have to do. You have to regularly update Amazon listings and stuff like that. But the breadth of a book's like publicity life will be different. Some books will have a very substantial footprint beyond publication date. Some books will have a shorter footprint beyond publication date. And it sort of depends on the kind of book, the size of book, um, what the author is available for. And for a lot of those things, we're following what the author wants and what the author is ready to do, whether the author has another job that they have to manage at the same time of it, whether the author is ready to you know, go on tour or not. And sometimes we're thinking about a book as being something that we want to target more to an academic market or more to a library market or more for um, children or adults. And so because we do all of these different kinds of books or books that are more consumer focused as opposed to academic focused. So the way that we focus our energies will be different book to book, just as the way that we handle them on the editorial side will be different book to book. Some authors turn in a finished PDF of a book, whereas other authors want editorial input at every stage of the process and want to have a really hands-on editor who goes through the thumbnails and uh, like comments on the manuscripts and stuff like that. So it really depends. But typically, you know, we have the checklist of things that we need to take care of for publication date. There isn't that much focus on what happens on actual pub date for me. I'm always thinking months and months ahead. 
and months and months after about the book. And when you work with authors, do you kind of involve them in that months and months ahead and months and months and months out schema? How much are the, are you working with them to kind of plan that out with them? Well, of course, I'm checking in with them. I don't plan a book tour and then say, here's your book tour. <laughs> Have fun. We don't work nearly as far ahead because we're an independent publisher. But when, once we put a book on the schedule, then we start talking about, uh, you know, what the budget for that book is, whether we think the author will tour, and then um, a fair amount of months ahead, like typically half a year, if not a year ahead, I would start talking to the author about their availability for publicity and their availability for events. And like, if there's like kinds of events that work for them or kinds of events that don't work for them, if they want to do a really extensive tour or if they want to do a smaller tour, or if they find it really stressful to go to festivals, but they like going to independent bookstores because they want to support independent bookstores. And so we'll go from there and we'll figure out what's going to work for this author. Somebody like Chester Brown loves to do all the interviews that exist in the world. Like he is so game and so ready to do interviews and events. And he also doesn't have another job beyond comics. So for him, when interview requests come in, typically I know that I can say yes to them whether or not he has a new book out. So his press cycle is years wide, you know, it happens before the book comes out, it happens after the book comes out for a long time afterwards. Whereas other authors, understandably, have a lot more on their plate in other kinds of ways, or they have full-time day jobs, or they have, you know, kids, or they have just constraints on their availabilities that mean that Rather than just share everything with them, I'm deciding what is an important th thing to ask of them and what isn't. And it's a constant back and forth. But yeah, I am in touch with authors a fair number of months before the book comes out to start making sure that they're on board with the promotion that we envision for that book. Um, and that if for whatever reason that's not going to work for them, that we're going to be able to accommodate it so that we're not planning an entire book tour and wasting our time doing so. We don't want to ask anything of people that they're not able to do. That makes sense. Um, can we discuss things that happen after publication that might drive attention to a book like awards or conventions? Um, is there anything else you've seen that kind of fits in that space that's valuable for book promotion? Yeah, I mean, awards have been really wonderful and especially are especially valuable for um, fostering long term attention from library and school markets. If we have, say, a nonfiction book, like we have this book, Grass, that's just come out, and it's about the experiences of a woman who was a sexual slave for the Japanese army during World War II. And that's like a very potent, disputed chapter of history. That's, that's a nonfiction history book. Then we'll look, as we're preparing for publication, we'll start thinking about, like, if there are awards for, for translated literature that we should submit this book to because it's a Korean manhwa. If there are awards for, uh, you know, East Asian literature or for a Korean literature in translation, we'll look and we'll do research to try and get that book space that it wouldn't get automatically um, and that comics wouldn't necessarily be considered in those award categories every year. But if we have a book that fits perfectly into that category, we'll always try to market the book to that um, and make sure to send it out for those things. One thing that we do a lot of, because most of what we publish is adult graphic novels, is we'll do research on professors and we'll send the book out to professors to consider adopting it for their courses because we have seen a tremendous surge in our backlist sales because of university courses choosing to adopt our graphic novels, fiction and nonfiction. So um, that's been an amazing boon to us in the past decade. So I'm actually really curious about this. Um, how do you approach like a university professor? Like, how does that email look? Are you just like, hey, I'm a publicist? Maybe you want this comic? Like, <laughs> Well, sometimes we just send them a book <laughs> and we hope for the best. With like a note? Yeah, like with just like an explanation of what the book is and a letter from us. Sometimes we send them an email. Often 
because our marketing begins substantially before, now we're getting back into before the book comes out, but often we'll do like on nonfiction topics, we'll do research on potential blurbers. Professors always write you back. They're really good at writing you back. <laughs> so like sometimes we'll approach professors for blurbs because they'll be excited if they feel that the nonfiction book or the fiction book that you're approaching them about that is a specialist for them. A good example of this is Peter Bagg's biographies that we've published in the past few years of um, Rose Wilder Lane and Zora Neale Hurston and Margaret Sanger. For the Zora Neale Hurston one, we approached a number of notable professors who focus on Zora Neale Hurston. Several of them wrote us back and provided blurbs of support for the back cover of the book. But when we were doing the research for the blurbers, we found a lot of other professors who we didn't initially approach, who we could later send the book to, and who were really excited about it. And often when we send out um, mailings to professors, we will get responses back and they will adopt those books for courses. Basically, we just search keywords and then university names. And we find them that way. And then we either reach out to them with a copy of the book because their office addresses are typically listed on their website, or we reach out to them via email. And Because their emails are also on their the university website. Yes, exactly. They're so easy to find compared to journalists. <laughs> and unlike, like for instance, somebody who does a lot of trade reviews, they probably don't get mailed hundreds of books constantly. Exactly. Yeah. So they're actually excited when you send them a free book, that is exactly what I study. This is amazing. I think we've talked about this on the podcast before also, but I think it's easy to forget, like, if you're a university professor and you teach a course once a year and there's 30 to 100 people that take that class and it's an assigned text in that class, like, that's a significant number of book sales from most books on an annual basis. Especially for like something that was published a few years ago, to be regularly selling 30 to 100 books in a given classroom every single year for a book that was published 10 years ago is like, yeah. And if you have like, even if you have five or 10 of those, that's like 500 books you're selling that typically you wouldn't necessarily be guaranteed to sell sales of unless you were a pretty high profile person and had released a book loop. Like, you get a backlist bump when you release a new book and you get a backlist bump, you know, if you win an award or something like that. But typically the majority of book sales that are made are made in the first year after publication. And so um, those academic sales have been a tremendous boon to us. So going back to awards, you had an interesting award experience last year with Sabrina. Yeah, so I think Sabrina is a great example of the kind of through line of our marketing. Often when we acquire a book, if it's an English language book originally, we acquire world rights for it. So with Sabrina, we got the book and all of us in the office read it and we were all blown away. We were all just like, oh my God, this is going to be a huge book. Like we knew that his first book had been well received and that it had won the LA Times Book Prize. And we could just see him going from like an incredibly powerful debut to this completely realized, chilling and devastating and still empathetic project. We just knew that it was going to break widely. So at that point, we decided to send it out for high-profile blurbs. And we got this incredible blurb from Zadie Smith. And then Zadie Smith talked about it in The Guardian. And so we had been planning to retain the UK rights for that book, but we decided to sell them because we could tell that this would be well-positioned in the UK already. And so... Granta acquired the UK rights, and the book was long listed for the Man Booker Prize, which was the first time that a graphic novel's received that recognition. Hey, congratulations. Thank you. I mean, it's all Nick. <laughs> he's incredible. Um, and he's like the kindest, humblest person in the world. And so the book came out in May, and it had had an initial press cycle of really wonderful praise, like really stellar reviews. Um but when the announcement of the Man Booker came, which was the week after San Diego Comic-Con, uh, so late July, it was just insanity. We and Granta sold thousands of copies in a matter of days. <laughs> um, and we had already sent the book back for a second printing, um, but we had to do two more printings to be able to be in stock for the rest of the year. So um, at that point, we decided to add on extra events for Nick. He's somebody who's not really 
he would much rather like stay and work on his next project than be out doing events. And so we hadn't planned many events for him. We had just had him do a couple of Chicago events because that's where he's based. But once we heard about the man Booker, we decided to bring him to Brooklyn Book Festival. And when he was in town for Brooklyn Book Festival, he actually ended up being interviewed for a New Yorker profile that ran the subsequent January. So now we're looking at a press cycle that began probably in March, April, and continued pretty heavily until January of the next year. Yeah, I mean, that nomination alone just sold thousands of copies of the book because there were all of these people who had never seen a graphic novel nominated for such a prestigious award. And I think the fact that the book had come with this incredibly ringing endorsement from Zadie Smith and the fact that it was about something that was so resonant with what everyone is worried about, about the 24-hour news cycle, about toxic masculinity, we really saw the bump that something like that can cause if you have this kind of first ever nomination for this award. That's amazing. It's such a good story. So obviously, though, this is like definitely an outlier. Yeah. Like your, yeah. your average book will not be the first book to be nominated for a major prize, probably. First graphic novel, rather. But I mean, I, I, I think it's useful to think about the fact that um, as much as we really focus on like book birthdays and getting ready for publication, whatever, that a lot of things can happen after a book is published that maybe you didn't think about. So like, what kinds of things happen to like a more sort of middle of the road book in that sort of first one to six months or so after it's coming out that might change its trajectory a little bit? Yeah. So I mean, typically, I try to keep most of the press, like the reviews from running until after publication date. Typically in the like several months after publication date, I aim for there to be a fair amount of press running in various different kinds of publications. So if it's, again, a book that's about a specific subject, then I'll try to find journalists who cover that specific subject, as well as my usual comics journalists, as well as, you know, um, maybe some trade outlets, as well as whatever, a medley of things. So there's press. And then usually with most of our authors, they do a few events um, and... For the events, we always try to land press in the city where the events are happening. And usually I stagger the events a little bit. If an author has a spring book that becomes a hit, then we'll bring them out to fall festivals because typically the fall is the big season in publishing. The six months after that, we would also be looking at other events. So maybe you have a local convention or something like that that happens in at your library or that events that are happening, a local book festival. Um, there might be events like that that get tacked on to the schedule. I feel like this is a very rambling answer. <laughs> no, but, but it, it, it speaks to how complicated it is. It's a weird, noodly situation. Yeah, so usually we have kind of a map of what events are going to happen in the six months after publication. We plan things relatively far out, and so we have a sense of what we're lining an author up for. Um, But if it's an author who likes to do events or who starts doing events and then realizes they'd like to do more and there's still room in our budget to make that happen, then we'll tack on more events. Or if they um, get a really great piece of press and that leads to more press opportunities and that leads to more event invitations, then we'll sort of have a back and forth about what things make sense for them to do and what things don't make sense for them to do. Um, Sometimes with authors, we'll also decide to just have them do festival appearances because we want to focus on breaking new audiences for them and finding new audiences for them. So festivals can be a great way to do that um, because a lot of the times you're on roundtable discussions, either with other literary authors who aren't cartoonists or with other cartoonists. And so if you're, uh, you know, on those panels with other people, then there are fans of those people in the audience, as well as your fans in the audience. And so you have the chance to convert people to loving your work too. So it's pretty variable, you know, what, what happens in the six months after, but usually some interviews, some events, something that, you know, maybe some other kinds of things. Um, If you're in a big city, there might be more event requests coming in because there are more events happening in the city that you live in. 
What I want as an author is to be on a panel with a bunch of people who are more important than me. Right. <laughs> like, I think that there's an attitude of, oh, no, like, I'll look stupid or, oh, nobody's going to care about me there. I'm like, yeah, no, nobody cares about you there. Now is your chance. <laughs> Make all those people who came to see somebody else and already bought that person's book want to buy your book also. You have nothing to lose here. Yeah, that's why I really like working with festivals like the Portland Book Festival and the Texas Book Festival, because I'll say, oh, you know... I think that Amindra Dhaliwal, who did this post-apocalyptic book where all the men went extinct, I think it would be great to have her on a panel with no other cartoonists, just a bunch of people who have like literary acclaim. And then she'll be on a panel with like Ling Ma, whose book Severance was incredible, Lenny Zumas, who did this book, The Red Clocks. And it'll be all of these different kinds of post-apocalyptic stories. Whereas if we had put her on a panel with other cartoonists, it would have been like a medley of cartoonists who had... Maybe it would be a humor panel or it would be a panel about um, uh, feminist comics. Yet another women in comics panel. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm not saying that because I don't like programming with comics festivals. I'm just saying that sometimes you have the opportunity to like really get into a theme. And of course, you can have comics panels where the cartoonists on the panel all kind of mesh together. But the chances that those people don't already know the other cartoonists on the panel are sometimes slimmer than when you're programming at a big literary festival where they don't have very many cartoonists. So for us, it's kind of exciting when we get to do these like really specific subject matter panels. Like I think Eleanor Davis is going to be on a panel um, at the Texas Book Festival with two other people who have books that are about like parenting in challenging kind of post-apocalyptic bleak America. That sounds amazing. It sounds like a big priority for you is is helping your cartoonists that you're working with reach an audience that otherwise might not know about them, but will be interested in what they're doing. Yeah, that, that's basically it. I mean, I'm very lucky because I get to work with people whose work I really believe in. And a lot of what I'm doing is just following what they want. But it's, you know, I'm I'm also really excited when I get to come up with ways that I can access new markets for them and that I can help them find those new markets. And because they're all so eloquent and well-spoken and like great at selling themselves that I'm excited when they have the opportunity to wrap their work to people who otherwise wouldn't necessarily go to an all-comics panel. So I have a question about response to the book affecting what happens with it and what you plan to do with it. You know, because you have you have the publishing industry, booksellers, librarians, you have a different audience in the comics community, you have a different audience in just like the general consumer audience. If you're looking at the responses of those audience, either lots of people coming to events or really great trade reviews or you know, a lot of buzz in the librarian community, a lot of like sales in the librarian community, uh, a lot of discussion on social media about the book. How do you respond kind of seeing any of those things start to happen? Do they affect how you plan to promote a book? Yeah, something like Amender's book is a good example because when we announced the book in January of 2018, we instantly saw like this tremendous upswelling of excitement on social media. And we saw how her social media audience just kept growing and growing. And so we knew that we wanted to make sure that that book had a sizable tour attached to it and that we could promote it thoroughly. And that we also knew that we would have to pay attention to pre-orders and look at what the pre-orders for that book would be to make sure that we had enough in stock and didn't sell out before Christmas. And I think we do something similar with Kate Beaton's book. Once we saw the initial popularity of the first book of Kate Beaton's, uh, at Comic-Con, where we had debut copies available, we immediately went back to press on it because we could tell that the demand was just so high. It sounds like checking in with the author and sort of gauging this person's individual feelings about it also is a lot of what you're doing here. Because, like, of course, different personalities. Some people will be like, no, that will grind me into dust. I will do the things that I said I will do and no more things. And other people will be like, yeah, bring it. Fuck yeah. I'll go to all the cons. Cons every day. Sounds great. <laughs> Exactly. And there's also, if we see that there's this big demand 
and that the person just doesn't have any more free time to add events or add extra things. We'll do other things like we'll do little freebies that we can give away at conventions to go with the book, or we'll do book plates and send them out to independent bookstores, or we'll make more galleys so that we can have more galleys for more of the booksellers so that they can all read the book, or we'll make more galleys available at library conferences. Um, So we're also always thinking of ways that we can respond to things that don't involve bringing the author in like asking more of the author than they're willing to give or than they have the energy to give. We're always looking for other ways to like build our ties with the people who sell and buy our books without um, overextending anyone Um, or our team, because we are a small team. It is just me and one other person planning and executing all of the promotion for all of our books. And so it's a blend of what will be the most impact while still not overextending. What's your list look like at this point? Like how many books are you and your your coworkers handling in a given year? We keep it between 25 and 30 books and we try to balance the seasons in a few different ways. In terms of subject matter is one of the ways that we try to balance it. So we try to avoid having too many short story collections or too many translations or too many original graphic novels or too many nonfiction books in a given season. We do it in part because we want to make sure that each book has the space to shine by itself. And so if we have like eight funny books, all of the people who write for humor websites (laughs) are going to choose whichever book they want to cover in a two-month period. They're not going to cover all of our books. So we try to be strategic about balancing out the list so that There's different kinds of books so that you don't have a season where Adrian Tamina is scheduled alongside, you know, Linda Berry and Kate Beaton. Um, We don't have like four of our best-selling authors all on the same season because then we would have probably a subsequent season where we would have none of our best-selling authors. Um, And that's neither season is fair to the author or to the other authors on that season or to the other authors in the other season because they would have too much or too little in common with the other authors that they're being published at the same time as. So we always try to make sure that there's a diversity of different kinds of books and different authors in each season. So I know this varies a lot depending on the publisher, uh, but do you find that Authors uh, who you're working with who have similar books end up kind of uh, helping each other out, sort of doing events together or talking about each other's books or being on panels together. Like, do, do you kind of group people at all in a sort of you're trying to reach similar people, maybe you guys can help each other out kind of way when you're planning everything out and sort of scheduling people's time? I'm more likely to do that with events than we are to do with the scheduling of the seasons. Because in the scheduling of a season, we want the one book on cats to not be undercut with, I mean, there's never just one book on cats, let's be honest, but we want the one book on cats to have its own space and to be able to get solo press separate from the like book on cats that we're publishing six months from now. So it's more like last year's cat star might be on a panel with today's new up and coming cat star and be like, hello, I'm now passing the mantle of cat book onto my protege this new author, please buy their book. Or the first, second, or the Fantagraphics cat star is on the panel with the Drawn and Quarterly cat star, and they talk about the different ways you can draw a cat. So D&Q really has a reputation for working with authors for a long time. Like, you know, you were talking about the company launching in 1989, working with Julie Doucet, like you still work with Julie Doucet. How do you think about kind of the arc of someone's career and like build like publishing a book with someone and that kind of first year of promotional stuff when you also are expecting to be working with that person 20 years from now? I mean, I think that is part of the reason why we're so concerned about the sustainability of events and promotion and why we're so willing to limit um, what we ask of an author or like that we're so concerned with respecting the needs of the author because we know that in like if we overextend an author on this book tour the next book tour they're going to be like oh my last book tour was a misery (laughs) 
you know? Um, and I said I could only do four events and then they tricked me into doing six. No, this is based on no one. Um, <laughs> everyone we work with is delightful. Um, but I just mean in general, we want to ensure that we're falling within the guidelines or that we're like listening even to the unspoken cues of what the author needs. So if I can tell that an author is getting bummed out because they're getting the same questions over and over and over again in an interview or in their interviews, because that happens, like people seize on a theme in a book and they're like, this book is about this thing. Tell me how you feel about this book being about this thing. Um, and journalists understandably find the main thing that the book is about and want to ask about it. And authors understandably get tired of talking about the main thing that other people perceive is their book. Maybe to the journalist, the book is about monkeys and humans and how similar they are. And to the author, the book is about divorce. Because um, <laughs> now I want to read this book. That's amazing. So the author's like, Everybody just keeps talking to me about goddamn monkeys. And all I care about is talking about how divorce is an epidemic in America today. <laughs> and you, and um, so if it's possible for me to tell that this person is getting burnt out on doing interviews, or if, it, or if you know, like there's other ways that you'll see those cues. You'll see like, oh, some this person used to respond to email interviews instantly within like a day or two. And now when I send them an email interview, it takes them like, a week and a half to, to respond to the e email interview, then I'm going to go back and be like, well, no more interviews. Yeah. Or they <laughs> no. suspiciously seem to be cutting and pasting from the same document into all of these <laughs> email interviews. I understand. It's always the same questions. And I understand why it's always the same questions. It's the same book. But the journalist has to ask the questions that are obvious about the book and the author you know, understandably gets sick of it. So in that case, if I see that somebody, if like I know that somebody does get burnt out on interviews because I've worked with them on two other books already and I see that they're getting burnt out on interviews, I'm going to go back and say, hey, I think you're getting burnt out on interviews. What do you think if we cancel this one and cancel this one and go forward with this one because it seems like the most high priority to me? And that is not a popular move as a publicist, but it is an important move to maintaining a relationship with our authors. It's so interesting, the different ways to manage author energy, because uh, there's what you're saying, like, oh, you're getting burnt out, not doing any more of these. Some people I work with, basically, it's like, okay, interviews really stress you out. So we're going to schedule all of your phone interviews to be in a four hour period. And you're just going to get it all done. And then you're done and you don't have to do it again. Yeah. Whereas other people would be like, that sounds like hell. I would rather do just one a day for a week. That sounds better. Uh, it's, it's very personal, obviously, what's going to work for different people. Yeah, that's definitely a check-in that happens before the interviews start. Is <laughs> like, some people like to do all the interviews. Some people don't like to do all the interviews. Everything is fine either way, of course. Um, and then also, like, do you prefer doing phone interviews or do you prefer doing email interviews? With email interviews, like, you can make sure that they don't misquote you. But with phone interviews, it's done so much faster. And some people start off thinking that they're, they prefer the agency of the email interview and then realize that the agency of the email interview is exhausting, <laughs> which I also understand. I would probably want to control what people said, uh, I said, because it's what I, I, people are going to read and think that I said. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, there's lots of different ways to try to make sure that you're not wasting the author's time. So you you talked a little bit about, you know, you have yourself and an employee, you're an indie publisher, so you, you have a certain amount of resources. Um, if there's an author who's like, okay, you know, I want to be doing all the things that I can to make sure that my book is a success, what can I do by myself? Or like, you know, in consultation with you, of course. I would say like some of the things that I always ask for from our authors is or that I think are generally good practice are put the book on your website if you have a website um, and include like a pre-order link. I recommend IndieBound because that's a great independent option or Powell's, another great independent option. 
usually what I like to ask authors the first time I work with them is if there are journalists who have been supportive of their work, who I should make sure to reach out to. Um, I also ask authors if there are themes in their book that they want to explore or things in their book that they don't want to talk about. So we're publishing a book called Creation by a debut author named Sylvia Nickerson. And it's about a mother, a young mother, who's dealing with postpartum depression in a city in the Rust Belt of Canada that's gentrifying rapidly and who's seeing, she's an artist as well, she's seeing the role that artists have in gentrification and she's seeing people being displaced by her wave of gentrification and then seeing the threat of her herself being displaced by gentrification. And so obviously gentrification is a huge subject in the book, but she was also really, she really thinks of it as a book about motherhood even though the motherhood parts of the book are maybe less obvious. And so for her, it was it's really important, you know, that that book be marketed to women's magazines and that it have a parenting angle to it as well because she feels like there aren't enough there isn't enough representation of postpartum depression and there isn't enough exploration of that subject matter. And so when we were talking about the book earlier in the year, we were talking about different places where where we could get press for that. And then um, if an author is from a city that I don't know as well, I'll often ask them what the local press is. Like if there's a local newspaper or Alt Weekly or a radio station or a TV show that uh, like a TV program that has authors on that they would like to be on because I can do that research myself. But also if it's a small town, then the author probably already knows about it. And they probably already know who the person is to reach out to and maybe have already been in contact with that person. And so usually one of the first steps for publicity is me asking, like, who are the journalists who've written about you before? Who are the journalists who have, like, said, keep me in mind if you ever ever have a book coming out? Like, are there local press, like, are there local outlets that would write about you? Um And then also, like, where are you from? Because sometimes your hometown or your alma mater will write about you in their alumni magazine. Um, And so I always try to get a bunch of that information from the authors because it's super helpful for me for framing my pitches. And then finding out if there's things like if I had found out that she wasn't comfortable talking about postpartum depression, like I would try to avoid having those be the focus of the interviews, for instance, and focus it more on gentrification. Yeah, so it sounds like, you know, really thinking about what you want to do with your book and what you want to talk about, but then also kind of like building your local community and network. Definitely. And then also like, I think these are obvious things, but people feel self-conscious doing them, like sharing reviews of your book. (laughs) That's good. And then like, I think the other thing that is really important that I maybe don't say enough is like, if you get negative reviews, not taking that too seriously. And if you have people criticizing your work, don't feed the trolls. The number one rule of being on the internet. Like if people are being negative about your work on the internet, email me and I'll commiserate with you and tell you that they're jerks and that they're wrong, but do not answer them. (laughs) That is... The number one rule of the internet, don't talk to the terrible people on it. Don't have a big fight and then get mad about it and then email you and be like, I had this giant fight. <laughs> email. Yeah, don't do that. Um, I also always ask authors to run events past me because I know that most people have a limited amount of energy, especially for public events that are scary and stressful. And so if somebody approaches them about being part of a literary festival, but it's like a literary festival I've never heard of as somebody who programs events in Canada, the UK and the United States. Um, Or if it's like, you know, a literary festival where they're not willing to pay you, but they want you to travel. It's really easy for me to say no. It is a lot harder for the author to say no to that. And I always want to be able to make sure that the author's time isn't being wasted, that they're not saying yes to things because they think it's going to promote the book. And then I find out about it and I'm like, oh, God, that's going to be a bad event. And then I'm worried that no one's going to come out. So then I'm trying to make sure that there's like lots of like publicity pushes on our social media to ensure that people come out because an unsuccessful event is like a failed party. Oh, it's it's like the fucking worst. It's the worst. And 
I will do like in Montreal, if there's an event that seems like we always tell people who book events at our store, like you should have 20 to 40 people who you know will come to this event because half of them will flake. (laughs) Um, But if there's an event that somehow gets booked, that it turns out that the person has like no connection to Montreal, we used to have that happen a little bit in the early days. It would be like a really acclaimed book, but the author would have no connection to Montreal. I have like a series of friends who I will text to come to the event. I'll be like, there's free wine. I'll buy you a chocolate bar after the event. Please come. Please come. Act like you don't know me. It's it's interesting. I, I did some events earlier this summer where it was like at a con where there's also a signing, which is kind of like a miniature version of like a bookstore event, right? Like um and, and one of the things that I, I, I did was I spent a lot of time talking to the other authors who were there who for whom this was their first time doing this. And I was like, this is why they send us in groups, so that if nobody shows up, we can just hang out and talk to each other, and it's fun, chill social time, as opposed to us sitting alone behind this table, staring at this convention center, wondering why everybody hates us personally at this con. Exactly. That's my nightmare. <laughs> and that's what I'm trying to avoid having our authors have happen to them. And and the same thing with the interview. It's the same philosophy as the interviews, like asking authors to just run the press and the like events past me is not because I want to micromanage them, but because I want to make sure that I'm not ruining their life because they have a new book out Uh, and that these events or these interviews aren't going to be like the events or interviews that make them never want to do a book launch again because it was so demoralizing or something like that. Although usually everything is not as bad as I'm scared it's going to be because I'm a professional worry ward, but I definitely like ask them to run things past me so that I can gauge what their availability is to do stuff so that they're not saying yes to an event that I think is not a good use of their time. And then later on being like, I'm overwhelmed. I don't know if I can do this very important thing now. (laughs) Basically, my philosophy is that if I'm in the loop about the events and the interviews, then I can help the author gauge whether or not they're a good fit for the author and for this book in particular, so that energy isn't being spent on things that aren't won't foster like long-term success for the book or long-term happiness for the author, because that's where my priorities are. My priorities are that they sell books and that they don't feel terrible at the end of the book promotional cycle, that they feel like pretty happy with how the whole thing went and like comfortable and at ease with where they've ended up. I mean, I'm really glad to hear you talk about this because I think that it can be very easy for anybody, but especially authors to have this weirdly punitive uh, attitude about a lot of the stuff, like the kind of it's going to build character way of thinking about things. Whereas I feel like it's better to be like we're human beings. And if you run an event that's really demoralizing our brains are programmed to make bad things seem bigger in our head than good things. So setting yourself up for something that's probably going to make you feel bad or or at best exhaust you is, is, you know, that's, that's not like a, Oh, it builds character. That just is a waste of your time. And maybe if you have a publicist to help you, you know, triage that kind of thing, that's just responsible. Like hurling yourself in front of the oncoming train of misery is not, does not make you a better author. (laughs) I agree. I think it's really a matter of finding the balance of what you can do and how much you can commit to before it gets to be too much and trying to avoid that point of too much. And I mean, the other thing that I'm constantly scared about when it comes to like committing to events that you don't know what they are is sometimes getting book sales at those events is almost impossible. It's like, a, like a 20 step layer labyrinth to get the books for the event. And I'm like, I, I have no idea whether they're going to sell books at the event, like how many people will come out to this event, but God damn it. I want there to be books out there. If there is an audience and they do want to buy books, I want that this to not have been like a total waste. Cause the worst thing is if you send an author out to an event and there are no books and they cannot sign, they cannot sell a book. They cannot make the money back for that book. It's very stressful and requires a surprising amount of micromanaging to make sure there are books at events. 
Yeah, no, I mean, that's like one of publishers main responsibilities, right? Like making sure that the books go to all the places, which includes, of course, like, you know, the course adoptions and the libraries and the bookstores and Amazon and all of that. But also like, anywhere an author is and doing an event, you have to make sure that someone who's at the event planned for books to occur. Which seems like it should be like the bare minimum, like the easiest thing in the world. But it I am here to tell you it is not. It is often very complicated. It is really glamorously difficult. <laughs> like it is like a lot of writing emails being like, okay, so you ordered the books. So what's the order number so I can check it to see if the order shipped? Okay, the order shipped. It should arrive. Tell me when it arrived. Okay, you haven't answered me. Did the books arrive? Okay. <laughs> Calling you now, did the books arrive? Oh, thank God the books have arrived. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm having flashbacks. My, my publicist was like, I was like, oh, don't worry. I've already organized for my books to be at SPX. It's fine. They're completely going to take care of it. She's like, okay, but can you tell me what the comic book store is? You should just, just tell me. Just tell me. And I'm just imagining her now being like, hey, hey, your books, the books are there, right? Are they there? Did the warehouse get you the yeah. books? Do you have the books? My author is coming down from New York and is not bringing any books. Do you have some books? I mean, fortunately, SPX is one of the easy ones. She can just ship some books if they order if they order them ever. But uh, it's very close to New York. So that won't be hard. But yeah, that's basically it. That is, it's like, you feel like such a dummy, too. You feel like this really aggravating, like, cuckoo bird, basically. You're like, yeah, you probably think I'm crazy because I keep writing the word books. Where's the book order? Tell me about the book order. Book, 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 book. Order books. Book, book. Quantity of books ordered. But you need to know. Well, yeah. And the I, one time you don't, don't do that, say, it'll be somebody who doesn't do it. I'm still scarred by the one time like six years ago when we were still training a new staff person and she didn't check to see if the books had been ordered and there were no books and we had to do crazy things to get the books. We've done a lot of crazy things to get the books. The the answer can be no, but can you tell us some crazy things you've done to get books to places? There was one time when we had an event here in Montreal and there was like two events with the same author in the same day and we sold out of books at the first event. And so we drove around Montreal to all the other bookstores and bought all of the author's books from all the independent bookstores at full cover price so that we wouldn't have no books at the event. That's fucking great. That's both the best and worst case scenario. Like, I mean, that's the kind of problem you want to have. And I guess the bookstores were happy, but also Jesus Christ. Yeah, it was a wild decision. It was like... The worst part was that the events were like four hours apart. So one of them was at 2 p.m. And then the, we were just like calling bookstores. Do you have this book in stock? <laughs> oh, you have four copies? Great. Can you set them all aside for me? And that's the other thing is most books get stocked like one to five copies at a time at most yeah. stores. Like it's not like it's not like most books are like, you know, a giant stack in the front of the Barnes & Noble or something. It's not how it works for most people. Especially yeah. at an independent bookstore. That I'm like, oh yeah, I have 50 of them just sitting right here. You want to buy all 50? Perfect. <laughs> I thought I'd really fucked up here ordering 50 copies of this book, but turns out it's my lucky day. <laughs> uh, yeah, we've done some of that. We had one, the tour that I was talking about, the author had to carry the books with him from Portland to Seattle because there were no books in Seattle or there were no books in Portland. I can't remember which one. Um, so any leftover stock at the end of the event, he took with him to the next event. And then I think we might have had to order copies from Amazon for the LA event for the same tour. It was like a five day tour and we found out on day one. So then we could ship some of the books or maybe we like FedEx them from our New Jersey warehouse. I don't know. It was a long time ago. I've blocked it out, but there was like Carrying the books from one stop to the next stop was one of the things. And then shipping them. I've really gone on a tangent. No, no, I asked for it. And I appreciate this vision of you whipping around Montreal feverishly buying your own books from independent bookstores. Um, I guess the other things that you have, we have authors do beyond events and appearances and interviews after the book comes out are uh, stock signings. If it's an author who's pretty well known and they're traveling to different cities 
we might arrange for them to do stock signings at bookstores because like independent accounts are such strong supporters of our books and have been so valuable to us that we're always trying to find ways to thank them for it. And so even if for whatever reason the author isn't doing an event with that bookstore, we might arrange for the sales rep to escort the author around. Um, like one of the things we did with Nick Dronasso uh, after the the Booker nomination was that we had him go around to all the independent accounts in Chicago. I think he did six bookstores in a day. And the sales rep sounds really good when she does that because then she's taking care of her indie accounts. And then he's also like having the chance to meet these people who are going to be hand selling his book a lot of the time. And it's just like a really nice way to thank them for everything that they do for us. Okay, I think that about wraps us up. Is there anything else that you want to talk about, about things that happen after publication, uh, things that you do after publication, things that authors you work with do after publication, that, or, you know, anything about comics in general? I feel like the comics community is really responsive and kind. And so if you're somebody who's into social media, it's releasing a book is a great opportunity to like connect with the people who read your book and to connect with other people in the comics community. And um, and if that's not something that terrifies you and is horrible to you, then talking about your book on social media and like responding to the people who read your book and tell you that they have on social media is a really great way to connect with people after the book comes out. Because the, the idea is that people will keep reading your book for the future, certainly beyond the first few months of the book coming out, people will be reading your book. And so if people are, you know, posting about your book and tagging you in it, that means they want you to know that they read your book. They want, they, they're like excited to share with you that they read it or they're jerks. But if people are posting about your work, like responding to them and being part of that community of readers is a really nice thing to be able to do too. I'm, it always makes me happy when I like, I'll, I'll go every once in a while and be like, Oh, our Twitter's kind of boring. And I'll search different authors' names and retweet things, nice things that people have said about our authors, especially like the authors who um, don't have new books out. I'll just kind of go through a, li- a list of different names. And it's always such a treat to see the people who are discovering someone's work for the first time and talking about how meaningful it's been to them. And I mean, I guess that's like a parting shot of post-publication. No, it's it's nice to remember that your book doesn't drop off the face of the planet like one week after publication. <laughs> no, no. It can feel that way, but that's not true. Yeah. It's there forever. Your book will always be new to somebody. Exactly. And that's really exciting. Being part of a community where your book, like, I think it's really cool to see how books change once they're in people's hands and to see like, oh, when I read this book, me as the publicist, when I read this book, I thought it was this. But the way that people are responding to it or like the the joke that people find the funniest or the meme that comes out of this book is something that I didn't necessarily think would be the thing. Like maybe I underestimated the reader. Maybe I just like am on a different page from the reader. But um, after the first six or 12 months, there's still going to be people who are going to be discovering your work for the first time. And that's like a really lovely thing about working comics festivals and ALA conferences because we bring so much of our backlist to those shows is seeing people like year after year, pick people picking up the books that aren't necessarily like the new hot books and being like, Oh my God, this book is incredible. It looks really cool. I can't wait to read it. And be, being able to explain to them what the book is about and see them go home with it. And then maybe they'll post on it on their social media and tag us in it because they bought the book from us. Hand-selling books is really fun. Uh, Julia, where can people who are intrigued by this discussion of your your after-book strategy find you <laughs> on the internet? You can email me at publicity at drawnandquarterly.com. I'm also one of the many people handling the Drawn and Quarterly Twitter we like to keep it mysterious who's tweeting what, although I revealed a little bit of the behind the scenes today on this phone call. Yes, we appreciate this exclusive insight. Thank you. I'm glad. Um, so DNQ Twitter is at DNQ, D-A-N-D-Q. And then we're on Facebook as Drawn and Quarterly and on Instagram as at Drawn and Quarterly. And yeah, email publicity at drawnandquarterly.com and I will do my best to get back to you. Some some days I'm fast and some days I'm slow. Depends how much coffee I've had. No, just kidding. It depends how many other emails I've gotten. <laughs>
Maybe both. Maybe a little column A and a little column B. Exactly. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking to, to us today. This was great. Graphic Novel TK is co-produced by Gina Gagliano and Allison Wilgus and is brought to you by The Beat. You can find our show notes along with other comics news and podcasts at comicsbeat.com. Our podcast graphics were created by Shivana Sokdeo. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. You can follow us on Twitter at GraphicNovelTK or email us at GraphicNovelTK at gmail.com. Authors, please appreciate your publicists. They do wild shit. Crazy things. <laughs> yeah. I've also heard a lot of uh, zipping people's dresses up in the backs of cabs on the way to award ceremonies. Oh, I haven't done any of that. Oh, yeah. I was talking to some, one of the publicists I work with was telling me about how uh, of the things that she's had to do unexpectedly in cabs, um, trying to get somebody into their dress on the way to an award is up there. And like when I got into book publicity, this is not what I expected to be doing. <laughs>